Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. If you brought a copy of the scriptures, would you open with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, we're going to spend our time this morning in the first eight verses of this chapter. Uh, Hebrews 6 verses 1 to 8 is where we'll be this morning. And uh, you may recall that last week when um, I introduced to you a warning, a warning passage, actually the writer of Hebrews did, and we talked about what he called dullness of hearing, or literally, most literally, a laziness, if you will, in maturing in our faithful pursuit of Christ. Now, he said that the condition of this dullness of hearing actually prevented the audience. It actually worked as an inhibitor, a block, a, a blockage, a roadblock, an obstacle, prevented them from gaining what he deemed as vital understanding about Christ and about Christ's high priesthood. He, uh, he explained that there was a moral rightness for you and I in growing in our faith and that there was an immoral reality in passivity or laziness. He then told us that the remedy was to put into practice, to do the things that Christ has called us to do to get into the fight, to move forward in living what it is we know. And while we'll get back to Melchizedek, which was the departure point in a couple of weeks, the writer continues to speak of the consequences of dull discipleship. He keeps moving in this way for this week and next week, Lord willing, we'll finish up this section of warning passages. But he talks about it that He warns us against failing to move forward in our faith. Now, in this area, in this passage, as with all the other teachings so far, the big picture for you and I is to see and to understand that Jesus is better. That's that's why I entitled the series the way I did. He's better than angels. The writer of Hebrews has made that case. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than every prophetic statement about God. He's a better picture and revelation, a better, he's a better image for you and I to grasp who exactly God is. Now that isn't to say that Jesus is a good option or that he's even the better of the several possible options, but it's to say that he is the only way to righteousness with God. All things, therefore, are committed to him and are for him. Hebrews 2 and verse 8 says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is in fact Lord, that he is without rival. That statement is without exception. Even if we don't see the effects of his lordship fully realized, there is no other. Now I want you to understand the tension. He's not discounting the law. He's not saying, hey, the law was bad. It was was a bad thing. It was a bad era for us. He's not discounting the law. 
He's not dismissing the ministry of angels. They're God's servants created by God to minister before God and to do his bidding. He's not disavowing the revelation of the prophets and teachers of old. In fact, he is the source, the origin of all prophecy. He's simply to this point saying that pointed forward, you already have the better. And as we continue in the challenge or the warning that we saw that we kind of kicked off begun last week, he now deals with the question, either asked or unasked, what if one turns away and turns back to the old? That's what he's dealing with this morning. I want us to see it together. We're in Hebrews 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. And can I invite you, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the Word of God. If you're joining us from home, let me extend my welcome to you and say we're grateful for your presence with us today, even virtually. And uh, I would encourage you to follow along with us. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Hebrews 6 and verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Verse 7, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receive a blessing from God and or but if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed and it's in it ends up being burned pause right there pray with me father would you take your word today and I pray that you'd speak directly and clearly to our hearts in such a way that we cannot dismiss it we cannot lose sight of it we cannot let our inner lawyer rearrange it but that it would speak clearly to our hearts that we might simply respond to it and then may our response bring you glory that's our prayer I ask in Jesus name amen and amen you be seated thank you for standing Hey, there is an outline that's available for you if you'd like to follow along. You'll find it on your app or at the link they're about to put up on the screen. But uh, let me share with you, I want to show you three elements of this message, three sections or movements, three facts about it. In the message, it's entitled simply this, One Way Forward to Faith. There's one way forward in faith, one way forward in God's design. There's one way, only one. And we sung about him today. His name is Jesus. Let me show you this first observation I want you to catch with me. Notice, first of all, the charge to move toward maturity. The charge, the command, the strong order, the instruction with power behind it, with expectation behind it, the charge to move toward maturity. Notice with me again the first 
three verses. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary principles about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I want you to catch a couple of things here because there's some imagery in this first section that kind of set the table for us. In fact, even in the first verse, the, the imagery in the first verse is powerful. It speaks of leaving the elementary and pressing on toward maturity. It lets us know that we can't cling to elementary and press forward. It also tells us that without foundation of the elementary, we would have nothing to stand on to move toward maturity. But it gives this picture of releasing one and grasping a hold of the other. Much like the picture we find in Genesis 2 in verse 24. Where God expressing his purpose of marriage, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined or cleave, be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here in the creative narrative, the instructions about marriage are similar and are God's design to fulfill purpose and to experience blessing. In some sense, to not do those things, to not leave and to be joined to would prevent the experience of blessing. And that same imagery is here as well. In some sense, we acknowledge the reality of where we were and we cast that aside in order to move forward. See, every married person knows this. Once, we're, once you're married, you never get unmarried. In fact, you never return to an unmarried status. The word here in Hebrews 6 and verse 1 for leave is the Greek word aphaemi. It means to let go of or it's sometimes translated divorce or cancel. It means to depart from. And it's what he said. We must divorce ourselves. We must cancel. We must move on from the elementary things. In other places in the New Testament, it's translated even as the word forgive. Jot this down if you're taking notes. He, Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 here, even in this prayer that Jesus gives us as a model prayer, he says, and afiame our, us our debts, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you wondered, could I still hold on to the elementary? May I ask the question, would you like Jesus to still hold on to the sins that you seek forgiveness for? Or do you wish for him to take leave of them, to divorce you from them, to separate you from them, to cast those behind you so that they are no longer in your life? That's the word that's used here. We certainly don't want Jesus revisiting our sin debt. And we must not dwell in or rest in or remain in elementary things. He says, let us leave the elementary things and let us press on. Pharaoh is the word in the Greek and it means to progress or to move to, to bring along. He says, let us press on toward maturity, teleios, which means to be perfect or to bring to maturity, to bring it to completeness. And he tells us if we cling to the elementary, if we refuse to release ourselves from the elementary, we can never get to maturity. Let us therefore 
cast this aside. Let us put it behind us and never revisit it again so that we can make our place to completeness or maturity. See, there's an incompleteness and an immaturity in remaining in the elementary things. So he charges us to press on in order to become complete and mature, to become perfect. Now, as I said, the elementary things are foundational. You can't get started without them. They're not wrong, but no one lives on a foundation. Rather, they lay a foundation so that they might build a structure within which to live. And that's the idea here. And he gives us six examples of foundational elements to grab a hold of. You saw them. He says, let us not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of instruction about washings. That's the Greek word baptismo, by the way. Of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment. Let's not go back and revisit these things that should be settled for the mature. By the way, each one of those examples had a correlation, a corollary in Jewish teaching. In other words, they had a teaching in Judaism about repenting from dead works. They had a teaching in Judaism about faith toward God, a teaching about instructions of washings. Matter of fact, many teachings about washings. There was common practice for the laying on of hands and uh, teachings about the resurrection from the dead unless you were a Sadducee for if you were a Sadducee then you were Sadducee because there was no resurrection and then there was teachings about eternal judgment all of these things were had a root in Judaism and here's what he said you've got to having settled that as a Christ follower it's time now to not go back and revisit not go back and relitigate but to leave that so that you can press on to maturity. Now, scholars generally agree that the issue then for that's going on, what's in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, and I agree, by the way. I'm sure that makes them sleep better at night too, going, hey, we, we're really smart. We wrote this down in the book, and Chris agrees. I'm sure right now they're really excited. But anyway, the... Uh, they said the issue was, is it's like somebody was trying to keep, the audience was trying to keep one foot in the world of Jewish teachings in these practices and yet trying to place another foot in the world of, of the completeness of Christianity. It's like they wanted to live somehow in both worlds, one foot in both worlds. They wanted to find, a, find something good and valuable in this that they could hold to that they would be accepted among their Jewish neighbors and at the same time hold on to the to the hope that was in Christ alone that this could not provide that somehow they could have both we call that word by the way syncretism and it's wrong it's one of the issues that our missionaries face and work hard for if you've been to South Asia already you know this if you haven't you should know this and you should go by the way there's a trip meeting coming up soon. But in South Asia, it's not, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to get someone to say Jesus is God. You could, take a, you could take Jesus and just add him to the pantheon of gods that 
might be in a person's life in a particular village. You may have hundreds of different gods represented in just a small village, hundreds of millions represented across the subcontinent of India. What we know discipleship's taking place is when someone takes the idols off the shelf in their house, when they take the picture of the deceased ancestor that they hope will give them favor with some version of God's, when they take those and they remove them and they leave them behind and step forward with Jesus and Jesus only, then we know we're getting toward maturity in the faith. Same thing here. He says you've got to leave behind these things so that you can press forward to maturity in these things. The application of truth is maturity. In the second service, we'll celebrate. If any of you know Mr. Clark, uh, usually the second service sits in a wheelchair in the very back corner of the room back here. And he'll be baptized after, listen, a journey. We're going to baptize him at 1045. And, uh, and hey, it's been a big deal for him to come to this place. I've walked this journey with him for a long time, along with many others. And uh, here's why it's such a big deal. Because baptism doesn't mean something like that he may be held on to in the past. He says this has different context and meaning, just as it always does for every Christian. Baptism is an identification with Christ by immersion as a believer Period. Full stop. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's universally taught and it's consistently taught. And it equates the identification with Christ always and only by immersion. Never any other means. I said something there so I don't want you to miss it because I don't want to get misquoted. Only and always by immersion, never by any other means. Never a means to, as a way to become a believer, but only as a believer. And oh, by the way, only once as a believer. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. What that means is, is that even though there are things here that we may look at and say, those are interesting, those are neat, they cannot be equated to helpful in our righteousness. Chris Aiken can sit down with my family and we can observe a Seder, a Passover meal with friends who could teach us of the symbolism in there, but there's nothing about the Passover meal that's going to cause the death angel to pass over Chris Aiken's house. It has no salvific value to me at all. It was a sign pointing forward, but it was never for you and I intended to be something we grasped a hold of. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I think it should. I appreciate what you think. Unfortunately, that's not the authority in our lives. It's not what I think or you think or what we think. It's what God says. And Christ and in Christ alone, we find our righteousness, our hope. And his word alone teaches us how and how we're to be and who we're to trust. So I can sit down for a Passover meal or eat a kosher diet or even go to the Holy Land and be baptized in the Jordan. But can I tell you, that's not my baptism. It's a, it's a neat event. It's memorable. It's a milestone. But it's not my baptism because my baptism was accomplished 
after I professed Christ at nine years old at Calvary Hill Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. That's my one and only baptism. There are no others. I don't find myself in a spot where I do something wrong and then to get cleaned back up, I need to go back through. What? That's elementary. That's, excuse me, that's weird. It's not the Word. The Word says otherwise. The writer of Hebrews says, in order to get to what the Word says, we have to leave behind the elementary in order to move forward. Now, if you believe the Bible is the final word and you believe that it's inspired in every detail, but you do not obey it in any detail, so as to hold to something else, be it tradition or pride or family preference, then you are rejecting truth while simultaneously claiming to affirm it. Now hear me, I've said that very intentionally for this reason. I know that some of you have not joined Inglewood to become members because to do so would require you to be baptized by immersion as a believer. And you have a tradition or you have a fear or you don't want to have to redo that fancy hairdo that it cost you a lot to do. I understand. Listen, I'm not making light of that. But if we hold those things to be of such value that they would then interfere with obedience that Christ says, they are in fact our God and Jesus is not. There is no place to hold on to the elementary and the mature and think that you can get there. You can't get there. You must first divorce from the elementary to move on to maturity. And we're charged to do so. That's the charge to move toward maturity. Notice secondly, the caution of no greater Messiah. This is what's going on for the, the readers here. Look at verses four to six. He says, for in the case of those who've once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, what's well, impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You may say that's scary sounding, it is. But the language here used takes the next logical step in the writer's argument in his case that he's building here. What he's saying to you and I, while in a very arresting and provocative way, is that if you ever go back, there's nothing better to come back to. You've already had the better. If you move to lesser, you'll not find anything better, better only the same better that you walked away from before. Therefore, it'd be impossible to renew you to repentance. This usually results, by the way, this passage in a singular question, different forms, but a single question. Chris, can I be saved and then either leave or lose my salvation? Well, 
If you're going to base that on Hebrews chapter 6, you've got to ask yourself the question, who's the audience here? Is the writer of Hebrews writing to believers or is he writing to non-believers? Now, you and I know that the Bible is completely true. It's true and it's true in all of its places and at all times. And by the way, that's without qualification, full stop. This means that when it comes to understanding meaning, when we find ourselves at difficult places in the Bible, we have to first settle the fact that the Bible cannot teach contradictory truths. If something seems confusing and it appears to be contradictory to something else that we thought was clear, it can't teach contradictions as both being true. So therefore, we allow the more clear to help us understand the less clear. Now, there's a theological principle for that and a hermeneutical principle for that, but I won't bore you with those things, only to say that this principle that we use says to you and I, if we think something means something, but it means different than something else clearly says, we were wrong in what we thought it meant. Because what it clearly says is what it always means. Therefore, it adjusts how we understand these things. Now, scholars have looked at this passage, which by the way, is arresting. It is overwhelming. And they tried to treat this passage in usually one of three ways. Some treat it in a fourth way, but usually one of three ways. Sometimes they'll treat it as a, or explain it as a hypothetical warning. A hypothetical warning. They'll say, it's a warning, but it's not a warning that could really happen. If it can't happen, is it a warning? If I lock you behind a, a wall and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab you by the throat and choke you out. I'd go, really? Good luck with that. You're on the other side of a big wall. You can't get to me. You can't. That's not a real warning. But you put us face to face. Hey, that might be a real warning. So they'll treat it hypothetically. They'll say, this could happen, but it couldn't happen. Well, could it or couldn't it? And as you can see, a hypothetical warning doesn't really make much sense. Then some will say, well, this applies to believers who later reject Christ and therefore they lose or forsake their salvation. Uh, we, we've got major denominational strains in, uh, here in the United States that would hold to that. By the way, they're wholesale faults. Because if you ask the question, can I lose my salvation? The answer is no. Well, how do you get that, Chris? Well, from my opinions. No, 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 that's not good enough. That's, my opinions don't matter. It doesn't matter what I say. Well, from doctrinal teaching, I mean, it's in a Baptist, and that doesn't matter either. The only thing that ultimately matters is the ultimate authority, and that's the Word of God. So here's what John wrote in his gospel in the third chapter in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him, believes in Him, shall not perish but have, the word is eternal. It means time without end. It does not mean quality of life, as some of my precious friends in the Methodist church believe. It means uh, a span of life. He may have eternal life, forever life. Not a life that you could ever give back and take away. You didn't earn it, you can't give it away but a life that uh, is eternal because God Himself gives it to you. 
Jesus affirms this. John 10, verses 27 to 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says, eternal life is eternal life, so you cannot lose salvation. Paul said, even if that were unsaid, the very character of God to continue the work that he began should be confidence enough for us. Philippians 1 and verse 6. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will teleo, perfect it, even until the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring it to fulfillment, completion. That means if you are a Christian, let me say that differently. If God says you are a Christ follower, if Jesus says, I know you and you know my voice, then there is no way under any circumstance in any context that you can ever not from that day forward be unsaved. It's not possible. The scripture teaches clearly otherwise. So if that's true, then this cannot teach that a believer could later reject Jesus. That can't be what he's saying here. A third understanding would be that this warning applies to those who appear to be believers but are not actually believers. There are some who maybe were baptized. There are some who maybe were, came to a vacation Bible school. There are some who maybe their, their Meemaw and their Paypal took them to church and their Meemaw and Paypal took them to church and their Meemaw and Paypal took them to church. Therefore, they come from a Christian family so they must in fact be Christian. They might even have a Bible that they carry under their arm. They might have the language. You know we have our own language, right? I couldn't hear you. Yes, we all have our own language. We said there's a, hey, brother. Translated means I'm not sure your name. I just want you to know I see you. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, will you pray for me? Bless the Lord. I'd love to pray for you. How you doing today? Blessed and highly favored. Or in a church I grew up in, there was a challenging password that we used in Baptist churches. Challenging password is what a sentry would use in the army. If at night you were being approached by a party you didn't recognize them, you would throw out a challenge that was given to you as a code, and they would respond with the response to that code. If they didn't know that code, you shot them. That was your response. And here's in Baptist circles, we don't shoot people. We don't shoot people. But our challenge password would be like this. God is good. See, you've all heard the same challenge and password. It's a different church. And then to make it complex, if you were at a graduate level, you reverse that around. You say, and all the time. See, y'all are all weird. You'd have your own language. But some would say, well, if you know the language and you have a Bible and you know when to smile and you can say, hey, brother, if you can do all of that, then maybe you are, but you're not really on the inside. Well, that's happened all throughout history. First John 2 and verse 19, John says that they went out from us, but not because they left us, but because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. 
I've had folks that have said to me through the years, I wish I had more time to tell stories. Second service is going to love it. <laughs> the folks that have said to me through the years, well, you know, Fred got his feelings hurt and uh, he's, he walked away from the faith. He's never been back. How long has that been? Decades. Fred didn't lose his faith. Fred had no faith to lose. You say, how can you know another man's heart? I don't know his heart. We'll get to how I know when we get to the third point. But here's what John said. Fred went out from us because Fred was not of us. For if Fred had been of us, he would have remained with us. But since he did not remain with us, he was not of us. I'm not a smart man. I just read well. Would you say that without grief in your heart? No, it grieves my heart like you would never imagine. But here's what we know clearly from Scripture. A rejection would indicate that they were not really converted, though they were in the assembly. By the way, even among the 12, Jesus had one that fit that category. And actually, I would say to you, fit it better than all the others. His name was Judas. How would you say he fit it better than all the others? They let him hold on to the money. You don't hand the, you don't hand the weirdo your checkbook. You don't hand a, a guy that you got questions about your wallet and say, hey, watch this for me while I, you, you hand that to the one that you think, this guy's never going to do anything with that. He's the most straight arrow we've got. Here's who you don't hand it to, Peter. I mean, that guy's an emotional roller coaster. But they gave Judas the money box. And Judas, by the way, walked away from Jesus. You say he lost his salvation? No, I'd say he never found it. I'd say he was close. I'd say he's a church member. I'd say he's, I'd say he did Jesus stuff. He probably taught a connect group or kept the nursery or stacked chairs. Preached sermons. Sang music. But Jesus was never in his heart. Jesus dealt with this in John chapter 6 when he told them a tough teaching. He said, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And they collectively said, ooh. And it said many of the disciples left him and followed him no more. And he turned to his disciples, the twelve, and he said, will you two go? And Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. I can't leave. I'm yours. They left. They weren't yours. They came for the show. They came for the healing. They came for the... They came for the benefit to them, but they never wanted to turn over control of their life. The warning applies in this case to those who would claim to be believers but walked away because they weren't really. So when you look at the warning, you have to ask yourself the question, do I fit in any of these categories? Am I an apparent believer? Or have I lost my salvation? Am I certain that it's not who I know, but who knows me that I'm holding on to? And the answer to that question never strays very far from, is there anything he's called me to do that I've just refused to do? Because if you would say, he's Lord, boss, full on, owner, ruler, master, but I ain't doing that. Then at least in some areas of your life, you've said he's not boss. Has he rejected you? No. But you've wholesale rejected him. Because if he's not Lord of part of your life, he's not Lord at all in your life. 
though he's still Lord, over your life. And you'll one day bring your life and give an account to him as Lord, but he's not the one that has saved you. He's the one you'll answer to. The writer of Hebrews tells them, you've got to move forward, but you can't move forward sometimes because you're holding on to things here that would keep you back. Maybe because you want to leave a door open to the other way. By the way, in our modern culture, we might even celebrate that today as being open-minded or progressive or intellectual in our modern circles. God doesn't celebrate it. God cautions against it. We're charged to move to maturity. We're cautioned that there is no better Messiah. Number three, notice he talks to us about the clarity of fruit-bearing lives. The clarity of lives that bear fruit. For fruit is, is in and of itself the only objective evidence that we have of a relationship with God. He talks about how that brings clarity to us. When my oldest son was about six or seven, that's been a minute ago, six or seven, he was saved at a young age. I, not because I didn't try to stop him. It's not what I'm saying, but hear me. He, uh, he told me it real young, five-ish, I want to be saved. And I said, oh, you can't be saved. You don't know what transubstantiation is. And, and uh, can you explain Armenian theology and the difference between that and the formed planks? Do you know any of the solas? And he'd be like, huh, I'm a five. You know, he's picking his nose and stuff. I, he doesn't know anything about anything. I had him interrogated by three different pastors, the last of which a sweet friend of mine by the name of Jack Gibbons, who uh, after he talked to Dylan, he sent him out of the room and sat me down and he said, you're a stumbling block to your son's faith. You need to get out of the way and let the boy be baptized. He's really there. I said, gosh, I'm trying to protect him. And I turned out, I'm, I must be holding on to something I'm not supposed to. So at six, probably some major tragedy. He probably robbed a bank or something. No, not, not at all. But he did come to me at six or seven. And he said, Dad, if I still sin, am I really saved? Now, that really is the question maybe on your mind here today. If you sin, are you still saved? There's a lot riding on that question. I mean, what you really want to know is how can I be absolutely sure that I am, in fact, a child of God? Apparently, some thought they were, but in fact, they weren't. Matthew chapter 7 covers many of those stories. Lord, have we not done all of these Jesus-like church things in your name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. There were some who thought they were, but weren't. My son chewed on that for a little bit, and he came back and he said, well, Dad, I've been thinking about it, and here's what I've come up with. If I feel bad, you insert the word conviction. If I feel bad for my sin and I want to change, I think that means I must be a Christian. Because if I weren't a Christian, would I even feel bad about my sin? said, dude, let me just tell you something. There's some smart guys in seminary who haven't figured out what you just said. He's right, by the way. The issue isn't our sinlessness. We're not sinless. It's our righteousness. It's what God does when we yield by faith to trust Him as He is. And when He reveals areas of our lives that are out of step with what He desires, what He's designed, we turn from that and turn toward Christ. 
imperfectly, but progressively. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it's also tilled, they receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. That's what he says. If the field is you and I, if it's our lives, and the blessing of God, the reign of God, the Word of God, the teaching of God falls on us and it yields fruit for the king, then we're blessed of God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, then we're but cursed of God. You say, well, why would God pour out rain on thorns and thistles on thorny land? I don't know, but have you been to my backyard? There's weeds all over that sucker. God rains on them regular. In fact, the, the Bible says that He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But it's what happens in your life when God brings His Word, when He brings His blessing, when He reveals His presence to you. It's what comes up out of your life as you yield to Him that determines whether or not you are His or not. Well, if, uh, if I'm the same as I was before I got saved, what does that mean? Listen, you had thorns and thistles before you got saved. So my question is, is, are you in fact saved? By the way, this taps into the imagery. I don't have time to unpack it for you, but it taps into the imagery of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. He says the seed of God is cast, it's thrown out. Some of it falls on hard ground that's been packed down by traffic and it never takes root at all. And eventually the enemy just comes and just snatches it all up. Other falls on hard ground that's got a very shallow amount of dirt. The roots never actually get to form all the way. The sun comes out and it burns it and it's gone. Some seed falls, but it falls in and amongst thorns and eventually the thorns just choke it out. But then some seed falls on good soil, he says. And that seed that falls on good soil bears multiplied benefits, some 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. He says you can tell what kind of soil it is by the fruit in its life. What does it produce? And that's no different than what you and I live with today. See, if you ask the question, can I be saved and lose my salvation? The answer is certainly not. The greater question is, are you certain that you've been saved? Well, I prayed a prayer. If you mean by talk to God, didn't the devil talk to God? I thought in Matthew chapter 4, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high place and said to him, cast yourself down. For doesn't the word of God say that God will protect you and give his angels charge over you so that you won't even dash your foot against the stone? Apparently knowing the Bible and talking to Jesus is not enough in order to save us. In order to be saved, we must, we must bow a knee before the one to whom all of us owe allegiance. Because God Himself has declared Him Lord, owner, ruler, and master. Now to bow a knee doesn't mean we sit down and say, by the way, I've got some terms and conditions of my life. 
I'd like to maintain control of my relationships, my checkbook, and oh, by the way, what I do on Sundays. Well, actually, to not let him be Lord of all is to say to him, you are not Lord at all. And it's to release yourself from any of the obligations. Nothing about Christianity applies to you. But to receive him in any way, to acknowledge him as Lord is to say, whatever you say, I'll do. Wherever you send me, I'll go. However you charge me to live, I shall live. But I don't know what all that means, Chris. No, but you know to whom you said it. And he said, I, the person, not this system of things that you must do, but I, the person, am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. My question for you this morning, how's your obedience? Are you obedient to him? Do you wrestle with whether or not to obey and choose not more than to obey? Do you consider Christ your highest treasure? Obedience your highest aim? Glory your highest aspiration? Or are you still sitting on the throne of your heart? If the latter then can I encourage you today? Come to Christ because Jesus is better. Chris, when you read Hebrews 6, does it make you nervous at all? Hear me carefully. Not even remotely. Why? For I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day and he offers that same confidence to every person here but if you would sit here today and you would say I know the Bible says but I won't then you friend hear me you must have the same confidence that in that day he will say to you depart from me I never knew you does it matter how many Bibles you own, doesn't matter how many committees you serve on, doesn't matter how many places or how many lessons you've taught, doesn't matter if you've been to seminary or not. You can have confidence that disobedience is declared independence from King Jesus. If you persist in this way, you can have full confidence of being that thorny ground which the blessing of God poured onto the field of your life, yet it yielded thorns and is destined to be destroyed. My heartfelt prayer, my prayer, my heart, my passion for you today is that you would turn to Christ. That you would reject obedience. You would reject the culture's picture of what it means to be a Christian. You would choose God over all of these things and find life and life abundant. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. 
If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.